0: Unbelievable Truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to The Unbelievable Truth. Many of the things that we all believe to be true are in fact false. That eating turkey makes you sleepy, for example. In fact, what tires you out at Christmas is two hours of trying to smile politely through your grandmother's casual racism. (laughs) Another urban myth is that alligators live in the sewers beneath New York City. This is obviously untrue, as they wouldn't stand a chance against the adolescent turtle mutants and their incomparable training in the Japanese martial arts. <laughs> Here to mix fantastic truth with bare-faced lies, please welcome the unbelievable Fred Macaulay, the implausible Will Self, the far-fetched Jack D, and the highly unlikely Jeremy Hardy. What happens is this. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five pieces of true information which they should attempt to smuggle past their opponents. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth, or lose points if they mistake a truth for a lie. We'll begin with Fred Macaulay. Fred used to be an accountant in Scotland. He was known for his tight control of finances and his scrupulous counting of every last penny. And he was also an accountant. Your subject, Fred, is the brain, the centre of the nervous system in all vertebrate and most invertebrate animals. Fingers on buzzers, everyone else. Off you go, Fred.
1: That wonderful organ, the brain, starts working the moment you get up in the morning and doesn't stop till you get into the office. <laughs> and for those of you who just laughed at that little Robert Frost joke, I can tell you that the brain wave activity in your head... Well,
0: it is a Robert Frost joke. It is a Robert Frost joke.
1: Yes, well done. I can tell you, if you did laugh at that uh, Robert Frost joke, the brainwave activity in your head is now different from those of you who didn't. If you didn't laugh, your brain is wired differently, or perhaps you're German. Copernicus... <laughs> Copernicus believed that working on mathematical or verbal puzzles used to enhance brain activity and he would often leave his astronomy till after he'd done a 16th century version of a crossword in the mornings whereas musical genius Beethoven simply poured cold water over his head to try to achieve the same kickstart to his day.
2: Well, It's true about Beatty, not Copernicus. It is true about
0: Beethoven. Beatty. Paul Beatty. Colwell, Beatty as <laughs> I don't...
2: Respect I don't, for
0: the man... I don't, I don't know Beethoven as well as you, so I, don't, I feel over-familiar. We, we are, like, Beatty. solid, me and Beethoven. <laughs> he did, yes, yeah. he did, used to pour cold water over his head, or some people say immerse his head in a bucket of cold water, and some people think that's why he went deaf, because he didn't dry his hair properly afterwards. No, so that's uh, only his
2: mum who said that. Yeah. <laughs> Which was mean of her to taunt him with his affliction. Abusive the
3: advantage of being deaf, though, is that taunting isn't very effective on you. Yeah. <laughs> Sticks are quite effective. Not, I'm not it. recommending his, his mum would moan on about him not drying his hair.
1: Go, you'll go deaf, you'll go deaf. He'd go, I'm looking forward to it, Mum. <laughs> After he'd skinned a raccoon for a hat, the North American Davy Crockett used to feed the raw raccoon brain to his dogs, copying a Native American ritual which would give his dogs a better understanding of other wild animals. That's true.
3: Eating brain does give you more understanding of other wild animals.
1: No, uh, I think no. David
3: Crockett believed that.
1: No, he didn't. Mm. Did
3: Native Americans believe
1: it? Mm. don't I think so. No. Is it true? No. I no. made it up. Okay. <laughs> I should also tell you there are some further lies ahead. <clears throat> <clears throat> when he tried them Im- not immediately, though, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> When he tried a mouthful himself, he accidentally discovered the vomit centre, that part of the brain which tells you to lean forward and open your mouth just before you throw up. Well. It does. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well done. Amazing. <laughs> it, for, for those of you that don't know, if you imagine your brain as Reading City Centre, the vomit centre is just where Yates' wine lodge is. <laughs> <laughs> uh? The common cartoon of someone having a light bulb over their head when they think of something new or clever isn't so far from the truth as the brain generates enough electricity to power a 25-watt bulb.
0: Well.
2: That's true. Yes, that is true. Well done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's true because I don't, you know, to save energy and save the planet, I don't have any light bulbs. I just get home and stick a couple of electrodes in, <laughs> in my skull. And that's how I write at home to the light of my own brain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like... <laughs> And the better the ideas are, the, the, yeah. p- the easier it yeah. is to see the page.
0: The easier it is to see the and page. And when you can't see the page at all, it doesn't matter, because you'd be writing crap yeah. by that stage.
1: <laughs> Thanks to new technology, Equity, the Actors' Union, weighed the heads of the cast of a West End theatrical production for insurance purposes, and it was found that the actor Brian Blessed's brain was the lightest of the whole cast, and it's thought that he, like others who have small ratio brains, shout as a way of compensating for their small brains. That's true!
0: <laughs> yeah, there's something very convincing
1: about the way you uh, interjected there. I, I feel I believe you, but uh, no. Since turning 35, I've lost my car keys twice, my Cockney accent and four million brain cells, but it's OK because I've got another 16 million which should see me through till I'm about 80. Jeremy. <laughs> I think you have lost...
3: 4 million brain cells since you were 35. You lose about no. 4 million every day, don't you? I will have
1: lost about 44 million. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's way we didn't more. know how old you were, did we? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Now, really actually, nervous.
0: after the age of 35, we lose 7,000 brain cells a day, which means that on the basis that Fred is now 52, he will have lost nearly 44 million brain cells since the age of 35, so
1: he's practically a simpleton before us. <laughs> I think that's unnecessary. I'm not sure. <laughs>
0: That's the end of uh, Fred's bit. Thank you very much. Um, At the end of that round, Fred, you've smuggled one truth past everyone else, which was that the brainwave activity in humans changes when we catch the punchline of a joke. Uh, Which means you've scored one point. Another little-known fact is that a shot of electricity to certain areas of the brain has been proven to revive lost memories, such as the memory of what happened the last time you stuck your finger in an electricity socket. (laughs) OK, we turn now to Jack D. Jack once fronted a popular advertising campaign for John Smith's beer, after which he was known for a time as the midget with the widget. Could be why he later turned down a campaign for Anchor Butter. (laughs) Jack, your subject is the umbrella, a device for protection from the weather, consisting of a collapsible, usually circular canopy mounted on a
4: central rod. Off you go,
0: Jack. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you.
4: The ancient Egyptians were the first to use umbrellas, having got the idea when the boy pharaoh Tutankhamun used an incredibly thin servant wearing a huge round hat to keep the rain off him. Well. I think they were the first to use umbrellas that we know of. Don't think they were. Bums. No, No, sorry. The servant, (laughs) Tutumbrella, known to his friends as Broly, Liked his job but disliked being turned upside down and used as a walking stick in dry weather. <laughs> Despite indisputable evidence to the contrary, umbrellas were not introduced in Britain until the mid 18th century when they caused consternation amongst London cabbies who saw them as a direct threat to their business. <gasps> well, I think they were introduced
2: in the mid 18th century.
4: They were, absolutely. Well mm. done. <laughs> Jeremy. Is
2: that
3: also true about cabbies? Yes, it is. Yeah, Uh, fantastic. uh, Fantastic. Jerry Is the next thing Jack is saying?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, it isn't. You lose a point. (laughs) Bad luck there. Um, oh, that's harsh. That's harsh, isn't it? That's like a
2: thought crime, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. You're like some hideous fascist up there, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, all right, all right. I'll, I'll take, I won't take away a point for the thought crime. Okay. Uh,
0: but you. yes, it's, uh, they, were, they were introduced in the mid 18th century from Persia by Jonas Hanway, and were
4: called Hanways as a result. Uh, yes, uh, amongst London cabbies who saw them as a direct threat to their business, owing to the fact that umbrellas were happy to go south of the river after six o'clock. <laughs> By the 19th century in England, anything other than a blue or green umbrella was considered vulgar for a gentleman to be seen with. He should also never open his umbrella in the presence of a lady, as this was thought to be suggestive of phallic growth and could cause her to faint.
2: (laughs) Well, what kind
3: of
4: phallic growth? I mean, the end of your penis doesn't turn into an
2: enormous efflorescence.
3: You speak for yourself.
0: Everyone keeps buzzing, but the first person to buzz was Jeremy. Do you think the phallic growth thing that Will found so laughable was true? Yeah. Well, it isn't.
3: Okay. (laughs) I withdraw that comment then.
4: Too late. No need
3: to withdraw it. It's fine.
0: It's just part of the game. It's all tremendous fun.
4: (laughs) <laughs> Jack. Furthermore, he should never carry the brolly under his arm like a rolled-up newspaper. Instead, he should stride along with it, grip firmly around the middle, always with a handle turned toward the ground, the way David does. In the early 60s, the empresario Lou Grade came up with the idea for a character called Steed after seeing a bowler-hatted gent fight off two attackers in Savile Row with a pristine umbrella that was, in fact, a sword. Amazingly, just then, a very fast car pulled up and a beautiful woman in a leather catsuit jumped out and karate kicked a third assailant straight through a shop window. When Grade went to ITV to pitch his exciting new programme, he was told that what he in fact had witnessed was the filming of their cult television series, The Avengers. <laughs> During the Cultural Revolution in China, umbrellas were seen as dangerously intellectual and banned by <sighs> Mao Zedong. Well... I think that's true. No! No, it's
0: not mm. true. But I, it seems very plausible, doesn't yeah, it? it does, I mean, it? pretty much everything was too intellectual. Was at one point, he's kicking himself now no. if he was still alive. Why didn't I ban them? They were useful. People liked them. Why didn't I ban them? <laughs> and then well, they said, he, "Don't be too hard on yourself. Millions still died. I know, but <laughs> I missed a few. Some of them him. could have got wet
2: before they died." Well, I only say it because it's well known that he banned Pacamax during the Cultural Revolution. Pacamax? Yeah.
0: I right. think there's more reason for banning Pacamax though, they're so clammy.
4: <laughs> Not if you wear clothes as well. <laughs> yeah. That's what they want me to do. <laughs> Possession of even a small umbrella like the kind you get in cocktails could result in imprisonment, or worse still, being paraded around town on a rainy day with a sound right under your neck that read Look, I am bourgeois pig without umbrella, please laugh at me. <laughs> In Hibbing, Minnesota, there is an umbrella museum which was once visited by Jimmy Carter. True. Well, Mm. no. Oh,
2: it just gets worse. (laughs) Bob Dylan's from Hibbing, Minnesota, and he loves umbrellas. That's that's why I chose... Also, apropos of an earlier remark of yours, Jack, you don't put umbrellas in cocktails, you put parasols in cocktails. All right. No,
3: you put you put very small replicas of parasols. Yeah. If you put a parasol in a cocktail, it would fall over.
2: No, if
4: not. Yes. Um, today, the Italians are the world's largest manufacturers of umbrellas. Well, that's true. No, it's not. Bah! No. <laughs> Sadly, this success has not been without its scandal, and in 1969, one Italian was charged with selling grated umbrella handles as Parmesan. <laughs> Thank you, Jack.
0: So, Jack, at the end of that round, you managed to smuggle three truths past the rest Ooh. of the panel. Yeah. And they are that in the 19th century, only silk umbrellas were considered fashionable by the British upper class, and these only if they were blue or green. Don't. Uh, army, it is astonishing, but uh, in fact army officers were so much taken by these blue and green umbrellas that they used to try and take them into battle and the Duke of Wellington had to issue an order telling them not to take umbrellas into battle but presumably instead guns
4: Uh,
0: the second truth was that in 19th century England it was considered vulgar to hold an umbrella under one's arm you had to grip it, uh, well-bred people gripped it in the middle and then with the handle turned towards the ground and in 1969 an italian was charged with selling grated umbrella yeah. handle oh, yeah. as parmesan cheese so that means Very that good. means jack you scored 3 points the chinese were the first people to waterproof umbrellas almost 4000 years ago genius and yet they missed the knife and fork <laughs> Right, it's now the turn of Will Self. Your subject, Will, is alcohol, which, in beverage form, is an intoxicating drink containing ethanol that's typically divided into three classes, beers, wines and
2: spirits. Fingers on of the rest of you. Off you go, Will. Uh, I admire alcohol from afar. A couple of years ago, I was stopped by the police for driving erratically and asked when I last had a drink. I answered October the 25th, 1999... The governor of Moscow in the time of Peter the Great of Russia... Jeremy.
3: I believe that. Yes,
2: that's absolutely true. The governor of Moscow in the time of Peter the Great of Russia was keener than I. He trained bears to serve alcoholic drinks to his guests. Ivan the Terrible was still less abstemious. He boiled his enemies to death in a vat of muscatel wine, then served the dregs to the guests at a royal banquet. Many years ago, English pub goers had a whistle baked into the rim or handle of their ceramic cups. When they needed a refill, they used the whistle to attract the barman. This inspired the phrase, wet your whistle. Fred? We must be uh, stumbling
1: across a truth. Well, Uh, which is
2: it? Which is uh, it, man?
1: Buck up. I'll go for the whistle in the jug. That's true. Well Well done.
0: What I think it would be worth saying at this point in order to stop there being too many letters is that that's one of the things that people think might be where wet your whistle comes from, but other people think that the whistles were baked into the pots because true. of the phrase it's actually, already existing. It's not true, though. Do you know that?
4: Yeah. I've watched, I've watched Antiques Roadshow for years. I've never seen one of those come up. I've never heard of it. Many things exist that haven't come up in the Antiques Roadshow. I don't, I don't agree. They've, it's they've been going long enough for everything to have been on it You think now. it's
0: been going on long enough for every object yep. on Earth... Yes. ...to have been... How many yes. do they do a week? I it's say been what, going like so long
3: that it used to be called Tomorrow's World. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Of all animals, insects have the most insatiable desire for the hard stuff. Studying pissed-up ants in 1888, the naturalist John Lobbock noticed that those that had had too much to drink were picked up by nest mates and carried home. (laughs) Conversely, drunken ants who were strangers were summarily tossed in a ditch. The popular television actor David Jason has a praying mantis called Ethel that he's trained to drink champagne from a tiny replica glass. It was believed that our own planet was the only place in the universe where alcohol naturally occurs until, using mass spectrometry, astronomers established that the rings of Saturn are largely alcoholic, while there is a cloud of alcohol in outer space containing sufficient booze to mix four trillion trillion drinks. It's free for the taking, but it seems unlikely that anyone will ever knock it back, given that the cloud is 10,000 light years away from Earth. Still, that hasn't stopped Alan Beavis of Gateshead, who has built his own space probe in his back garden and who aims to blast off in 2016, together with two of his mates, for the longest booze cruise ever. NASA scientists have examined Mr Beavis's probe, which is called Hazel Blear's One, and pronounced it surprisingly fit for purpose. I wish Mr. Beavis luck and salute his desire to not only admire alcohol from afar, but die aiming for complete immersion. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Will. So, Will, you managed also to smuggle three truths past everyone else, which are that the Governor of Moscow in the time of Peter the Great uh, did train bears to serve alcoholic drinks to his guests that uh, studying the experimentally induced intoxicated behaviour of ants in 1888, naturalist John Lubbock noticed that the insects that had too much to drink were picked up by nest mates and carried home while the drunken stranger ants were tossed in a ditch. That's all true. Uh, And the third truth is that there is a cloud of alcohol in outer space with enough alcohol in it to make four trillion trillion drinks. Only 10,000 light years away. Mm. I think it's called heaven. (laughs) So, Will, that means you've scored three points. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The shallow champagne glass is rumoured to have been designed by Napoleon himself, inspired by the shape of Josephine's breasts. Josephine was later replaced in his affections by the woman who gave him the inspiration for the pint glass. (laughs) Now the turn of Jeremy Hardy. Jeremy is one of the most famous comedians of the 20th century, known particularly for his long-standing double act with British-born comic actor Stan Laurel. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) Your subject, Jeremy, is cheese, a solid food prepared from the pressed curd of milk, usually the milk of cows, buffalo, goats or sheep, which is often seasoned and aged. Off you go, Jeremy.
3: For gourmets, the king of cheeses is the mini baby bell. (laughs) It is not only the most delicious, but also the most versatile of cheeses, occasionally taken orally, but more often in suppository form. <laughs> the other famous cheeses are Terracotta, Fetid, Yorkshire Grey, M&M, Dolce Vita, Palm Olive, and Camelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> My favourite is Primula Cheese Spread, which is made by leaving toothpaste in the sun.
4: <laughs> uh... Jack, I'm, I'm suggesting that Jeremy's favourite cheese is Primula cheese spread. No. Uh, no. Well, of course, you, have, you can say that, can't you? Even, even if it is, you can still... Yeah. No, but it has to be on a
2: matter of public record. I
4: suppose. So. But, I mean, you don't do a
2: lot of those kind of what's-your-favourite-cheese-style interviews that I'm aware of. No. Do you? I don't get asked. I'd do them if I was asked. Would you? Yeah. With what's-my-cheese... Would you do what's-my-drawing-pin? <laughs> would you do that?
3: Um, what's yeah, your like... drawing pin,
2: yeah. Will, out of interest? Just basic drawing pin, no, basic, no frills basic No, I don't like those ones with the little coloured plastic bit on the end for courtboards. I think they suck, actually Well, the honestly. ones with the sort of elongated Yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. really don't like that no. And what's more, if I had my way, I'd have a pogrom against people who use them And expel <laughs> them from our country, because oh. they're a rot A lot of people think that So, <laughs> fair
3: point <laughs> The Dorset Cheese Blue Vinny was named after a famous pornographer in Lyme Regis. It is the hardest substance known to man. Jewellers cut diamonds with it, swans use it to break people's arms. On one famous occasion, it was used to replace a defective wheel on a train. And in 2006, three people were slightly hurt when a blue Vinny hit a car during the traditional cheese-rolling festivities at Corfe Castle.
2: It's true. What is? They were hit by a blue vinny in their car.
3: No, that's not true. Bum. No. In fact, cheeses have a range of practical uses. Grated parmesan is used as dandruff in shampoo commercials. (laughs) (laughs) The Royal Navy at one time issued all sailors with blue cheeses in their food rations as an early form of antibiotic to fight bacterial (laughs) infection. Uh,
0: Jack, that is true. No, it isn't. (laughs) But I like the way you said, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Now, that is <laughs> I, true. I nearly lost all confidence. That is true, actually. Uh, so I'm, I've been in the Navy. <clears throat> yeah. um,
3: and EDAM was used as cannonballs by the Uruguayan Navy in 1841 in a sea battle with Argentina. And as evidence of how long cheese keeps, in 1956, explorers in the Antarctic found tinned EDAM that was still edible and had been left behind.
0: <laughs> well, That's true. Yes, that is true. That is yes, true. well done. <clears throat> um, they found, found tinned edam that was still edible and been left behind by Captain Scott in 1912. It's not particularly surprising because that is cheese that is both
3: tinned and frozen. In 1987, a 1,400-year-old piece of cheese was dug up in Ireland and found to still be edible, or at least much nicer than a brand-new bit of Cathedral City. And a packet of cheesy Watsits has a half-life of 20,000 years. <laughs> For centuries, cheese was seen as an unnatural, adulterated food. The Puritans believed it was an indulgence and even a satanic corruption of mother's milk. Some cheesemakers were burnt at the stake while jeering crowds threw bits of bread at them, thus inventing fondue. <laughs> Today, the Mormons in Salt Lake City forbid the eating of cheese before church. Sure about the um, Mormons. No, it's usually true about the
2: Mormons. <laughs> So it was, a, it was a good buzz because uh, you know they believe anything, don't they? they I mean, yeah. it, well, Angel Moroni digging up gold tablets. The uh, Native Americans are Jews. They believe any old and they, cobblers. And they will essentially forbid anything. Yeah, they'll forbid anything. Spin the bottle. Forbid, forbid the thing it points at. They forbid pence. They forbid what? They forbid pence. You're not allowed <laughs> to wear pence if you're a Mormon.
4: I can't get around your pronunciation. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> Pants. I'm, that... I'm struggling with that. That's
4: a Salt Lake City accent you're doing there. Yeah, yeah
2: there. maybe. All right, press on, Jeremy.
3: Okay. Um,
2: Humiliate me further.
3: Um. Okay. And in Tampa Bay, Florida, it is illegal to eat cottage cheese after 6 p.m. on a Sunday. The most important development in the history of cheese was the individually wrapped cheese slice. Before that, cheeses had to be swallowed whole. Because of the difficulty involved in cutting them with a knife or grating them with some kind of grating device which might be invented in the future and perhaps called a cheese grater. Because of these difficulties, cheese has almost no culinary uses, the exception being cottage cheese, which is fried with onions and baked under a layer of mashed potatoes. (laughs)
1: I think it is illegal to eat cheese after 6pm in Tampa. Too
3: B. bloody late! I finished!
1: <laughs> um, uh, sorry,
0: Jeremy, I'm, I'm just thinking about that. Jeremy, what do you think? Do you think that was too late? Finished. <laughs> I finished! I got to the um, end! I, I, no, because I, I, I was wondering what your opinion I was, was bit, on was the... <laughs> Because what I often do when someone buzzes late is I'll have a kind of think about it and then maybe mind. I'll go to someone for their opinion. So I was wondering, Jeremy, <laughs> just don't, be honest, what do you think? Do you think he buzzed too late or is it all right when he you buzzed? You can
3: go back through it now that I've smuggled no. so many through, randomly pointing out that so, some so of them I, must be true. So
0: to clarify... I'm in a cheese coma. coma. I'm, I'm a, in a
3: cheese I've coma. done magnificently well do you, do, smuggling do you think, four past you and you so, just can't face it, Jock, can you? <laughs> So, With your chippy, fake sense of colonial oppression, despite the fact you were the foot soldiers of the empire... Let it out.
1: <laughs> let it out, Jeremy. So,
3: on balance,
0: Jeremy, shall I give... <laughs> shall I give Fred the benefit of the doubt there, or do you think he buzzed just a little bit late?
3: Give him a point. Oh. Now, I, I think he
0: buzzed a little bit late, actually, but that's yeah. very sporty of you. Sorry, Fred, I think Jeremy I, was all I for see. giving you the point, no, but... I, I, um, I'm I think he buzzed right, a little no, bit late.
1: No, I, I don't want the point. I think I came in a bit late. Right. <laughs> you, just well, my opinion, it's, obviously. It's it's just lovely when everyone's so sporting
0: like that. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> so yes, Jeremy, you managed to smuggle four truths past the rest of the panel, and one of them was actually was spotted subsequently by Fred. I don't know if anyone picked up on that, but the consensus was that he'd probably buzzed a little bit late. Um, <laughs> And uh, that is that you can't eat cottage cheese after 6pm on a Sunday in Tampa Bay, Florida. Obviously, I don't suppose many people are sent to prison for that. The other truths are that in 1987, a 1,400-year-old lump of still-edible cheese was unearthed in Ireland. And someone actually sampled a piece and described the taste as unpleasing, though not revolting. (laughs) And similar to Wensleydale. (laughs) And... The other truths are that the Uruguayan Navy won a sea battle using E-Dam cheeses as cannonballs, (laughs) uh, apparently during the Uruguayan Civil War. And uh, the last one being that on one famous occasion, uh, according to Dorset legend, blue Vinny cheese, which has a a very tough skin, uh, was used to replace a defective wheel on a train. (laughs) I have to say, I think your local sort of culinary traditions are revealed as somewhat feeble when the best thing you can say about a local food is that it was once used to repair a train. (laughs) (laughs) But that means, uh, Jeremy, you've scored four points. Britain has 700 different types of cheese, and if you include Dairy Lee triangles, 700. (laughs) Which brings us to the final scores. In fourth place, with minus one point, we have Fred McCauley. In third place, with no points, it's Jack D. In second place, with one point, it's Jeremy Hardy. And in first place, with an unassailable two points, is this week's winner, Will Self. That's about it for this week. All that remains is for me to thank our guests. They were all truly unbelievable, and that's The Unbelievable Truth. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists Jeremy Hardy, Fred McCauley, Jack D, and Will Self. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and the producer was John Naismith.
4: It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.